Hey friends, welcome to This Good Word, episode 124. And today I want to talk about the Eucharist. You might call it the Lord's Table, Holy Communion, the Common Table, maybe the Lord's Supper. I want to talk about what it is and where it came from. I want to talk about how it's changed and morphed over time. I want to talk about what it actually does in a person and what it does to the church. Uh, And I want to talk about how we might look at it differently and practice it in a more robust way. Maybe you think about it in terms of an ordinance. It's just something we do in the church to remember Jesus and remember what Jesus did. Maybe you think about it as a thing that enables you to go to heaven when you die. It gives you salvation and you have to do it a certain number of times per year or per week. Uh, Maybe you look at it differently entirely, and maybe you don't practice it at all. Regardless, it's been around for 2,000 years. It's been one of the most uniting and one one of the most divisive things within the church. So I think it warrants a little conversation. Now, most of you know that I started a church three years ago. And one of the decisions we made kind of right away is that we were going to do the Eucharist every single week. Now, coming from my background, which is Protestant and even evangelical, uh, that was very uncommon. The churches that I grew up in, we usually celebrated communion once a month. And when we did it, it it was always a time to really reflect on your sin and to make sure that you were okay with God before you took communion. And so there was always a period of time in between the prayers of communion and the actual taking of communion where people would be sort of rubbing their brow, having a look of serious uh, contemplation on their face, and then they would be ready to take communion. And so that's sort of the frame of reference that I came out of. And what I've learned about the Eucharist over the years Uh, has been that it's something entirely different. And so when we started Genesis, our church, we decided to practice the Eucharist every week. It's something that we enjoy. It's honestly something that's the one thing that we do probably now that if we changed it, if we decided to, nah, you know, I think we're going to do it once a month, there would would be an absolute revolt. (laughs) The people in our church are actually pretty flexible and very beautiful um, but man, seriously, I think if you messed with the Eucharist, if, if you said, we're going to do it once every month, uh, they they wouldn't be okay with it. So how we're going to do this today is, first of all, I'm going to talk about the language. What does the Eucharist mean? And then we're going to look at three different scripture passages, which talk about the Eucharist in different ways. And then we're going to look at the history of how the church has practiced the Eucharist over the years and what it has believed, the debates it's gotten into and how it's morphed. Uh, And then I'm going to tell a story about something that happened to me while participating in the Eucharist. And then lastly, I'm going to give a way for us to practice the Eucharist and think about the Eucharist that I hope will be inspiring 
and hopeful and maybe different uh, if you uh, have been practicing the Eucharist for a long time without really knowing why. So let's dive in language. Uh, In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we actually hear the word eucharizomai, and that's how we get the word Eucharist. It's a Greek word, and uh, the verses, as in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, go this way in English, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, the word thanksgiving is the English translation of the word eucharizomai. So it's actually two Greek words put together. Eu, E-U, is the first part of it. It means well or good. And then charizomai comes from the root word charis. And charizomai means grace or gift. So first of all, whatever else the Eucharist is, the Eucharist is a good gift for which thanksgiving is offered and even abounds. So you got to remember that. We're going to come back to that. But first of all, whatever else the Eucharist is, the Eucharist is a good gift for which thanksgiving abounds. So that's language. Let's look at scripture. There's this bizarre passage way back in Genesis 14. And if you know the story at all, kind of the father of Christianity and Islam and Judaism is this man named Abram. His name later gets changed to Abraham, but there's a time where he leaves his land, he leaves his kindred, he leaves everything he knows because he's been invited by God to go forth from where he is in order to be blessed and then to be a blessing. And he's told not to take anyone, but he takes uh, his nephew Lot. And Lot essentially gets cap- get, gets captured by someone else. There's these wars or battles. Abram wins and then has Lot brought back. And then in Genesis 14, 17 through 20, we read about this really bizarre uh, scene. So I'm going to read it to you, starting in verse 17 of Genesis 14. After Abram's return from the defeat of Cheder Laumer, <laughs> that's a fantastic name, Cheder Laumer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and king Melchizedek of Salem, Salem means peace, so Melchizedek, and Melchizedek comes from the root word tzedek, which means righteous. So essentially, righteousness of peace comes out to meet Abram, and this is what's fascinating way back in Genesis 14, bringing out bread and wine. And he was priest of God the Most High, and he blessed Abram, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, what's weird about this is several things. Number one, we never see Melchizedek again uh, until way, until the Hebrew script, or until the New Testament in Hebrews uh, talks about him uh, as the, the continuous priest. So we don't know who this person is. We don't know where he's he's come from. We just know that he's righteousness of peace. And he brings out 
bread and wine. Now, this is thousands of 4,000 years before the time of Christ. And we read he was priest of God the Most High. Now, what's bizarre about that is that the priestly class doesn't get instituted until much later, until Exodus, actually. (laughs) So it's really weird. We have this guy bringing out bread and wine and blessing Abram as a priest even though there's the Eucharist will not come about for 4,000 years. Uh, the Passover isn't even a thing yet. Priests aren't even a thing yet. And at the very beginning of the story, Abram receives a blessing, receives a good gift, and it comes out in the form of bread and wine. I mean, come on now. So in Luke 22, that's the second passage we'll look at. This is the Lord's Supper. This is when Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And so I'll just read it to you. When the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table and the the, the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same thing with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me and his hand is on the table. For the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to the one by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to ask one another, which one of them could it be who would do this? So we have Jesus, 4,000 years after Melchizedek and the bread and wine that was given to Abram, on the night that he was about to be betrayed and would later be executed, he brings out bread and wine, And he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. And remember, they're celebrating the Passover feast. So this would have been the celebration that they had done since the ninth plague, since the 10th plague of Exodus, when the children of Israel were rescued from the land of Egypt. And they were told by God to uh, put blood on the doorposts of their uh, house And then the angel of death would pass over them without killing the firstborn son. And that's gruesome. That's, you know, trying to explain that as the subject of of an entirely different podcast. But every year after that, when God uh, delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, they would have the Passover feast and they ate certain things to remember how Jesus, uh, sorry, how God uh, delivered them from the land of Egypt. So last passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. This is Paul writing, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the year of of the Lord's death 
until he comes. And we see an interesting pattern here with Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. I received from the Lord a good gift. I received from the Lord his body broken and his blood poured out. I received that from the Lord. And now I hand it over to you. Not just this liturgy, not just this practice, but I believe Paul is saying this way of living, this way of being a body broken and having your blood spilled as a way of being with Christ in the world and giving a good gift of your very self to the world. But if you, the only way to do that is by receiving the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. So we have bread and wine, we have body and blood, and essentially a liturgy is made uh, around a sacrament. These ordinary uh, visible signs, this bread and this wine, is going to point to the invisible reality of the very presence of Christ, the grace that comes from God in the very presence of Christ, which indwells us and fills us as we receive the Eucharist. So from the very beginning, uh, the early church believed that when they participated in the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, when they were blessed and consecrated, they believed that the real presence of Christ was available to them. They believed that the bread and wine became the body and blood of Christ after consecration in a kind of mysterious way that they couldn't really explain. In the very earliest uh, church, they believed that the bread and the wine remained bread and wine, but also it became the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And from about the time of Jesus' death and resurrections to about the year 100, the early church would share a full-blown meal with each other. They would feast and they would eat and they would laugh and they would talk and they would, I just imagine little five-year-olds running up on their uncle's lap and being told a story. And it was a joyous time of thanksgiving. And then at a certain time in the end of the meal, the, someone would pray a prayer and someone would sometimes give a little sermon and read a little portion of scripture. And then they would break the bread and drink the wine and celebrate what Jesus did on the last supper. It's beautiful. And then around the year 100, um, for reasons I'm not quite sure of, the meal was separated from the Eucharist. And so the meal stayed. It was called an agape feast. Agape means love. So this love feast where people ate and drank. And even we read, and certain historians say, that uh, the poor were fed. The poor were giving bread and, and, and wine at, at an agape feast. And uh, so, so, so beautiful. Um, and then... Around 100, now remember, at around 100, the original disciples, the original apostles had died, and there wasn't really anything um, to hold up the traditions. And so the early church fathers began to write. And so we read about the Didache and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of Lyon and all these different people that became became like the earliest apologists of the church. And one of the things they talked a lot about was the Eucharist. 
And um, Christians were persecuted during this time. They were seen as atheists because they didn't worship uh, the Roman gods and they didn't sacrifice to the Roman gods. But they were also seen, this is really interesting, they were seen as cannibals because the rumor spread that in their secret love feasts and when they celebrated the Eucharist, they would eat the body and blood of Christ. And so they assumed uh, that they actually ate people and they sacrificed human beings. There was one uh, rumor that went around that they would bake, and this is really disgusting, I'm very sorry, but this is what we read. One rumor was that they would actually bake a baby in a loaf of bread and eat that. So you can see that Christians were seen by Romans as disgusting uh, hillbillies that were superstitious and atheistic and really, really weird. So again, that's why some of the uh, early church fathers started to write about the actual practices and the, and the liturgies of, of worship. Well, um, the first thing that the early church had to combat really, um, especially as it relates to the Eucharist, was a couple of different heresies. There were many, but two of them I want to point out. One of them was this heresy called docetism, which essentially says that Jesus was fully divine, but not really human. Jesus only appeared to be human. He was kind of like a, a specter or a ghost. And he, he, he did it in such a good way that he fooled everybody, but he wasn't really human. And that really came from another heresy, which is called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was dualistic, meaning, um, you know, think of two, um, think of a binary way of thinking where one thing is all good and one thing is all bad. And in Gnosticism, matter uh, is evil. So bodies are evil. Um, the earth is evil. And spirit is ultimately good. And so that was the dualism. Now you can see how this affects the theology of the early church because they believed that Jesus was God incarnate. And so they believed that in some mysterious way, the spirit of God filled a human being. And so they would reject Gnosticism altogether all and Docetism because central to their belief was that Jesus was an actual human being, but he was also simultaneously God. And so how that affects the Eucharist big time is because if we really believe the real presence of Christ is, is available, Christ's actual body and Christ's actual blood, Docetism would say not possible because Jesus wasn't really an actual body. Gnosticism would say that is disgusting, that is ultimately evil, and nothing that would be godly or good could inhabit a body. So we saw those heresies being fought over and over again, and people would write about it. Uh, Augustine got into the fray, Cyril got into the fray, and eventually at the Council of Ephesus in 431, and then especially later in the Council of Chalcedon in 451, it was decided that Christ has two natures, but he's but those two natures are united into one being. That's a thing called hypostasis, and it took like the the rumors had it that people would say you couldn't go buy a loaf of bread without getting into a debate about the nature of Christ. It was so like everyone was talking about it. Finally, again in the in the mid fifth century, uh, the church came to a decision on the uh, on on the nature of Christ: fully human, fully divine, but one essence. Two natures, one essence. So um, another thing that happened in, that in the early fourth century, which 
was radical and really led to some huge changes in the Eucharist was in 313, the Emperor Constantine came to power. And he was the first emperor that eventually institutionalized Christianity. So in 313, there was a thing called the Edict of Milan. And there was two emperors at the time, Constantine and Licinius. And they essentially made a proclamation that Christians could worship freely from now on. They could worship in buildings, they could build buildings, and clergy were given appointments that were um, that were um, part of the national um, Roman Empire. And so we began to see a mixing and merging of Christianity and the Roman Empire. And the good part about that was that Christians were no longer killed for uh, worshiping God in their way. And they could worship freely. They could worship according to the way they wanted to worship. They didn't have to hide anymore. The obviously negative part about it was that Christianity began to be influenced by the Roman Empire in ways that were not good, in ways that gave them um, the bad kind of power. And it also... Um, in ways that would eventually lead to very corrupt misuse of power, uh, nepotism, and really, really bad things in the later centuries. But the Eucharist uh, made its way out of basically a meal around a table. And after the Edict of Milan, these basilicas were built, these cathedrals were built, and the Eucharist became something that you, that wasn't on a table anymore, but now it was on an altar presided over by a priest and participated by congregants. There was, uh, the liturgies got more and more formal as the years went on. And that's kind of how it was for several hundred years. And then there came kind of the second major uh, battle to the Eucharist. And that was the great debate in the ninth and 11th centuries about this question, how can it be that Jesus could be present at the right hand of the Father as the scriptures teach, but also on the altar in the Eucharist? How could that be? And so in the, in the ninth century, uh, this guy in this little abbey in, in France said that um, the way that that could happen is that the bread and the wine are actually changed substantially not just mystery, not just spiritually, but the bread and the wine after consecration are actually converted into the body of Christ. And they're no longer bread and wine. They just appear to be bread and wine and they just, and they taste like bread and wine. And that's a grace from God, because if they actually tasted the way they should, which was like flesh and blood, we would be disgusted. But the way they sort of got around theologically, this idea that it was impossible for the, the body of Christ to be present both uh, at the right hand of the Father and at the Eucharist table and in every single piece of the Eucharist bread after it was broken and in, let's say, a thousand masses at the same time was the fact that the bread and wine are actually converted into the body and blood of Christ in substance. Later on, that's going to be called transubstantiation. But there was a big debate here because other people said, no, it's got to be symbolic. It doesn't actually change. The bread and the wine remain bread and wine. Till eventually St. Thomas Aquinas in the, in the 13th century wrote this masterpiece called Summa Theologica. And, and it's just, it's, it's this huge uh, section of questions and answers. And, and 
he he sort of writes it as an endless debate where he answers the questions. It's really actually super fascinating, and he was brilliant. And basically how he answered this question, he's the one that came up with the official uh, idea of transubstantiation. But he says, Christ does not move, per se, from the right hand of the Father to uh, the Eucharist table, but really the bread and wine actually are converted, just like water was converted into wine. We saw lots of miracles that Jesus did. And so why couldn't we believe that the bread and the wine could actually be converted into the body of Christ in a way uh, that was so substantially different that the bread and wine were no longer there. So um, Thomas, and I can't get into it because it's way too detailed, but he argued that Christ's entire body and all of his blood was present in each sip and in each morsel of the Eucharist as it was passed around and in every mass that was gathered. And so uh, the whole person of Christ is is available in each piece of the host. It's brilliant theology, actually. And this is called transubstantiation. Now, the, the reformers, Zwingli, Martin Luther, they're going to challenge that, and they're going to challenge lots and lots of beliefs about the Eucharist and about certain beliefs in the Catholic Church. Um, and that's going to be the Reformation. There was an idea called consubstantiation, which believed, and that's what the early Lutherans believed, and some Lutherans still believe, that the bread and wine coexist alongside the body and the body and blood. So it's like one step backwards. Um, and we're not going to get into the theology of the Eucharist around the Reformation, but that's the history of it. And so you can see how it changes from table to altar. You can see how it changes from sort of mystery to a more robust realism. And that was largely due to the fact that uh, the works of Aristotle were rediscovered in the West. And so where um, previously the Platonic ideas from Plato uh, really ruled the day in terms of Greek culture, Roman culture, and the early Christian culture, when Aristotle's views came back in, there he had a, a sense of reality and realism. And so it became more important for the theologians of the church uh, to explain exactly how this was possible in less of a mysterious way and more of a way that would that would satisfy some of the the itch that uh, these new realists and people that were involved in empiricism really needed, and so we can see how um, how the understanding changes, how the form and liturgy changes, but really the bread and the wine become the body and the blood. The real presence of Christ is available for His church. In the Eucharist, the good gift is received and then given out for the good of the world. People's bodies are broken and their blood is spilled out physically and metaphorically for the good of the world. When people understand that um, part of what it means to be the body of Christ in the world is to be willing to pay the price, to give what you've also received, just like Paul did in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and that's what has changed. And so, or, or actually, that's what has stayed the same. And so as you think about the Eucharist, uh, think about it this way. The definitions changed. Some of the theological understandings changed and morphed. But really, the identity stayed the same. So think about it like a child that grows up. Identity remains the same. This is the body and blood of Christ given for you. It's a good gift. 
the definitions, uh, the way it's celebrated, those things change over time, just like that child grows up over time and wears different clothes and lives in a different state. Um, but the beauty, the mysterious beauty of, of the sacrament is that over the years, over the 2000 years, it remains the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ. So that's the history. Now a story. Uh, when I was 21 years old, uh, I was in between my junior and senior year of high school, uh, sorry, of college. And I was a major big time party boy at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota. I actually loved it there and had a great time, had a blast. Um, but I think I got really tired of, um, of really of that life. And so I decided to work at a Christian camp like you do. And at this Christian camp, I did staff training for a week and I met all these people. And it was really my first concentrated time around a group of Christians. And I grew up in the church and I think I probably was a Christian growing up, but it really didn't make sense to me. And I really didn't receive it. I really didn't accept it. I didn't ever reject it, but I didn't ever fully, fully accept it. And so at this, um, after the staff training, we had this communion service and it was probably a hundred of us. And this guy, this kind of pastor type, he read some scriptures, he gave a little talk, and then we received the communion. We received the Eucharist, the bread and the cup, and uh, something absolutely uh, transcendent happened as I received the bread and the cup. Uh, and this is something I'd done, I mean, probably hundreds of times in my life before, hundreds of times growing up in the church but nothing ever close to this had happened. And what happened was I experienced in the, the most real way possible, and it felt so tangible that the creator of the universe, God, God's self, and the person of Jesus uh, expressed to me at the most innermost part of my being that I was not only loved by God, because God has to sort of love you. You know, that's the contract that everybody knows. Everybody's told that God loves you all the time so much that it doesn't make any sense anymore. I experienced the known reality that I was liked by God. And it changed. It, I mean, I ugly cried. I wept like a baby in front of all these relative strangers, about 100 people, but I didn't care. And something substantially changed in me. I was 21 years old. Something changed. I kind of understand when the scriptures talk about moving from death to life, when they talk about being born again, all those different metaphors, they're just metaphors. Uh, but I understand what they mean because it happened to me. And it was a complete gift. It was a good gift. I received from the Christ, his broken body, his poured out blood into me in a way that substantially changed me. And um, after that, I experienced the entire summer of sort of hanging out with kids. I was, a, I was a counselor to all these kids. I had all these different conversations, these spiritual conversations with kids. Uh, I ended up speaking for my first time that summer never thought I'd be a, a, a pastor, but at the, by the time that summer was over, I decided I wanted to be, I wanted to give my life to this. I wanted to give my life to being a good gift to the world. Um, 
I wanted to give away that which I had received, this, this transcendent sense that God not only loves us, but really actually likes us. I wanted to give people the opportunity to know that. So I went back and did my senior year at Gustavus and went on to grad school. And then I became a youth pastor for a lot of years. And I've been in the church, working in the church ever since. Uh, and that was 20, well, gosh, that summer was 26 years ago. I've been a pastor now for 22 years. And uh, the beautiful thing about the Eucharist is it's not just for pastors, uh, anyone. It, it is for anyone to receive this good gift the broken body of Christ, his blood poured out, which in some mysterious way is spiritual nourishment. It's what I experienced uh, at that weird staff training around that Eucharist table. It was beautiful. It was transcendent. And it really changed my life substantially. So I want to end with um, knowing all of that, that we have a good gift, which we can both receive and pass along I want to invite you into a different way of thinking and practicing the Eucharist. So if the church is the body of Christ in the world, then the body of Christ receives the body of Christ over and over again in the Eucharist. It's a good gift to us. So the church receives the body of Christ and the broken body of Christ, the blood poured out that is our nourishment and our, um, uh, empowering, and we receive that for our own good, for our own nourishment. That's a good gift. And then the body of Christ gives out what they have received to the world. So we become the body of Christ, and in doing so, we become a good gift to the world. And when we choose to do that, when we choose to pay the cost of that, we have to realize our body will be broken, our blood will be spilled. There's a cost to being a good gift. Now, I mean that mostly metaphorically, mostly symbolically, but I know what it's like, and probably so do you, to feel like your body has been broken and your blood has been spilled after you have been a good gift, uh, maybe after a really transformative conversation. Um, for me, after I preach or after I have a significant conversation with someone, uh, I have a sense that it really, like something significant passed through me. And so when my body is broken and my, when my blood has been spilled, I need to return to the Eucharist to receive the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, the common table, to receive the real presence of Christ again so that my body can be put back together so that my blood can be poured back in and so that I can be a good gift to the world all over again. Not because I'm such a good guy, not because I'm such a good pastor, not because I have so much capacity, but because I've made the choice to return to receive from Christ that which I can give away to the world. I first heard that understanding of um, the Eucharist from Rob Bell back in 2006, 11 years ago at this little conference that he, that he put on, but I've never forgotten it that the Eucharist, that the church can be a Eucharist to the world and that we need to come back to the Eucharist to receive that what, what we can then give away. So my friends, the church and you are a good gift to the world when you're willing to be broken and poured out. 
And you can continue to be a good gift in the world when you make the decision to return, to receive Christ's body and Christ's blood again and again and again. So that's the Eucharist, my friends, the good gift. And I hope this episode um, gave you an understanding of the radical nature of the abundance of God that built within the very fabric of the way these sacraments work are is dependence. We need to return to receive this over and over and over again. But also it's not just for our receiving, it's for us to give it away as well. So there's this endless dependence and also this endless opportunity to give away. Uh, and it's a cycle. We receive so that we can give. We give so that we can receive over and over and over again. So friends, I hope this is helpful. Um, I love talking about this stuff. And um, as we always say at the end of this good word, we are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy. And my friends, we are in it together. Grace and peace. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Ween's Author, Twitter at Steve Ween's, and Instagram at Steve Ween's. And you can find all my work, all my books, the show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash thisgoodword. Suburb.